Let me, uh, let me go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then, then we'll dive into a lot of different things playing out here in, in Acts 4 and 5. So, Father, we love you. We're grateful for the chance to gather in your name. Uh, Father, to read these passages, to think about what's going on here uh, in the life of the early church. Lord, I'm thankful for this season in Acts, Father, and I pray that uh, you'd continue to stir up in us longings for uh, movements of your hand in, in our day in, the, in similar ways to how it played out there for the early church. Lord, you're the same God. We are the same church, Father. You have the same spirit, which you still give to us. And um, Lord, you want us to, to be bold witnesses just as uh, you have instructed your early church and just as they so faithfully walked in. And so I pray that the, those realities would uh, come deep into our hearts, Lord. And I pray that in the uh, the passages this week, some of them challenging to, to contemplate and think about, Lord, I pray that um, you'd continue to convict us and uh, allow us to reorder our lives to look more like you. So God, our time now as we uh, think about these passages and um, God, my lips, let me only speak what is true. Um, make us make our hearts open and sensitive to the things you want to say. It's in your name that we ask all these things. Amen. All right, we, uh, we typically start off, as you guys know, with um, an analysis of our themes, sort of what's playing out in uh, the big five themes. I'm going to end with that if we have time. There's a lot of things I want to I cover today. Um, so if we don't have time, maybe I'll just add it to the podcast or whatever. But I uh, but want to jump straight into what's playing out here in these passages. Um, this is a, a lot develops in chapters four and five. Uh, we catch sort of this, it all begins there in verses 32 and to 37 at the end of chapter 4 with this, grim, this glimpse of um, great grace playing out in the church, the uh, communal lifestyle that they had, the great unity that they had. I mean, doesn't that just make you all long to be in a church like that? I mean, uh, it's challenging to contemplate some of the things that the, the church was doing, selling everything they had. Nobody was claiming ownership to their own things. I mean, we... It's so antithetical to how we live today. We are an individualistic culture, so this concept feels very much so. It, this almost feels like communism, like this is, this is wrong. We shouldn't, you know, something about American, uh, you know, uh, economic realities, capitalism for the last uh, 200 years has just put into our bones feeling like this is maybe even sinful, but, it, but it's not. I mean, the church uh, joined one another in their needs and, and cared for one another deeply and um, participated with great unity, and, and it was a beautiful reality playing out. So, uh, you know, we're meant to see just great unity, great grace, uh, great sacrificing playing out there in, in chapter 4 as the early church is, is just profoundly, uh, wholly profoundly uh, growing a, a great season for them. And yet straight out of that, what do we see? Ananias and Sapphira, uh, right out of uh, this example of Joseph who... Uh, pay attention to him. He's going to be significant as Acts continues. You've probably heard of Barnabas. Um, he's not, you know, in, in uh, Christendom. He's not remembered as much as Paul is. He's not remembered as much as Peter is. But Barnabas was a huge, enormous character in the early church. And we're catching his original story. His name is not Barnabas by birth. His name was Joseph. He's from Cyprus. He's a Levite. He's of the tribe of the priests. He's a Jew. He's not a Gentile. So all significant things to remember as we get to know him more in the weeks ahead. Um, but the apostles change his name from Joseph. They give him a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Very significant there. Um, and then he, he sells this field 
and brings every bit of those dollars and lays it at the apostles' feet. So great, great example in him. And then you immediately jump to Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and that's where I'm going to focus most of our teaching time. So I'm going to skip that for now as I kind of give this overview, come back to it in a moment. But, but just know a, a sad moment of sin plays out in the church. Um, uh, you know, it's a little bit surprising that Luke even includes this. Uh, here he is telling the history of the church. Why would he tell the, the bad moments? Well, he's a good historian. He's telling the, the profound things that happened at the beginning. This was clearly profound. Great fear falls upon all the believers as some of their own. These are not outsiders to the church. These aren't, you know, sinful people within the church. Well, they are sinful people within the church. But, but I want you to see that they were, in every sense of the word, insiders in the church. These were Christians in the pews, you know. Uh, who, who did this, and um, great fear fell upon the whole church in response to their deaths. Um, then this comes straight out into this great description that you know more signs and wonders are happening by God. The Spirit continues to move. Uh, people are being healed uh, through the apostles. The Holy Spirit just pouring out great power on this early church. And it says more than ever believers were added. So last week we saw that the early church was up to about, we're, we're thinking, 13,000 in its first few weeks. And now more than ever, it's continuing to grow. So I don't know. We, we're not given a lot of numbers uh, here going forward. But you can imagine within the first few months of this church's existence, let's say if it's more than ever, it's at least doubled again. We're up to 26,000, this church, in just a few months. It's exploding. They even say it, people outside of Jerusalem are beginning to come in to hear what's happening to be healed in these ways. Uh, in, in verse uh, 28 of chapter 5, you see the church leaders, the, the religious leaders, not the church leaders, the Jewish leaders in the, in the council. Um, so the high priest and uh, his companions, they say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So you're seeing, you know, the, the gospel is doing exactly what God said it would. It would begin in Jerusalem, and it's beginning to fill. It's beginning to, uh, and we're going to see in the weeks ahead, it's going to start spilling over into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, just as Acts 1-8 taught us. But um, yeah, all of this sets up what plays out in the last part of chapter 5. You saw it there, another showdown between the apostles and the high priests. Um, and the, the Jewish leaders, they arrest them once again. Uh, an angel comes and lets them out of prison in the middle of the night. That's cool. Uh, interesting, it's not the Holy Spirit that does this. It is an angel of God. That's a distinctive moment from what's played out previously. But the angel comes and he does the same thing that the Holy Spirit did. He says, go and keep proclaiming, keep witnessing. You know, uh, We're not going to let this stop. So they go and they uh, proclaim in the temple. They end up the next day being arrested again, pulled back. Uh, you know, into the council where Peter gets to give this. Uh, and it's not just Peter. You know, the other apostles are also speaking here, it sounds like. But they get to preach another sermon to the high priest, to the religious leaders. So again, the witnessing is playing out in the life of the church, uh, even before councils, as Jesus told them that it would. Um, and then they're about to die. The council is really mad at them. Uh, their frustration, their jealousy, their anger is just continuing to build. Um, and God uses this wise man, Gamaliel. Um, don't we all want to be like that, right? Like, I loved his example uh, in, this, in this moment. Like he, uh, you know, talk about giving a, a word in season, being able to give a calming word to people who are really upset, being able to de-escalate, being able to, um, you know, calm a moment, disarm anger. Uh, and, and God uses him to totally protect his work 
um, in, in a really profound way. The apostles are able to go free. Um, they are beaten. You know, so persecution is beginning to grow. They're not just being arrested now. They've been beaten. It doesn't stop them for a moment. They continue to go out and teach. We're told there at the end of chapter 5. Um, so that's what's playing out. We're going to see things continue next week. Next week is a, a pretty big development week um, for us. But I want to focus in on Ananias and Sapphira because I think we're seeing a lot of... Um, a really scary thing. I don't know how this all hit you guys as you were reading it. This was the one that, that stood out the most to me. But I see a lot of development in their story um, that teaches us a lot about sin. What sin is, how it works, how it hurts the church, how sneaky it can be. So I want to I wanna unpack this a little bit. I've structured this around five uh, things we're seeing about sin here, five teachings about sin. If you've got your note page, you can take some notes, fill these in um, as we look at their story. Five things we see about sin. Number one, the seriousness of sin. I think we are meant, this, this account is meant to show us uh, just how serious sin is in the eyes, in the mind of God. It matters immensely. It's not small. It's not inconsequential. You know, even this sin, which may have just been a little white lie that didn't hurt anybody, right? Like, uh, no one was, was injured by this by this lie, this deceit that they had. And yet it receives this immediate, enormous consequence. They fall over dead. Um, how many of you this felt harsh? Like, what was God thinking? Me too. Me too. This, this, this feels harsh. Uh, it feels like God is being overly judgmental in this moment. So we need to think about this and try to understand what's playing out. What did they do? What sin is actually playing out here? It wasn't greed. You know, a lot of preachers will use this in, you know, even building campaigns and say, uh, it's time to give to the church or else, you know, uh, which in light of our announcement on Sunday, perhaps that's the direction I should take. Um, but, but clearly, Peter says in verse 4, there was no obligation for them to give this money. This, this land was yours. When you sold it, the money was yours. You, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. So, uh, and, and they give a lot of it. I think the majority of it, they're able to create this deceit, this story that everything, you know, this is all that it was. You know? So clearly, I think they're giving a majority of, I don't think it was a tithe. I think it was much more than a tithe of whatever proceeds they had that could have passed as the full amount for the land that they sold. No, Peter tells us what the sin was. It wasn't greed. It was deceit. It was that they lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. Um, he says, you're not lying to man, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, which is interesting because they actually are lying to men. They're lying to the church. You know, God sees everything. I don't even think Ananias and Sapphira in their hearts were like, oh, God doesn't see us right now, we're lying to God. Now, I don't think they had such a bad theology that they thought God couldn't see them. I think they thought they were just lying to the church, but God views that. Peter views that. The inspired Word of God says that lying to the church is lying. That's interesting, that that's lying to the Holy Spirit. But, um, but it's deceit. And interestingly, I think the deceit is just the fruit on the top of their hearts. Way down underneath it is hypocrisy. They want to be seen as something. They love the praise of men. They want to be seen by their peers like Barnabas was, as this great man, as these great people who are so generous, but they didn't actually want to be generous. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. You know, they, 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 that, was, that was the sin in their heart. They were deceitful and they were uh, hypocrites. They were spiritually insincere, duplicitous people. And while that does feel small in our minds, it's not small at all. In, in every sense, family, this is truly a violation of the greatest commandment, is it not? 
you know, where the um, Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the most important law in all the Old Testament? And he says, uh, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That we are to have such a, a unity of heart that there's no duplicity. Uh, with everything we are, we should love God, which in a sense, every sin we ever commit is a violation of that, is it not? So, you know, the, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is to, you know, have no gods before Him. That He's to have a, a seat of honor in our lives uh, above all else. Um, and, and all sin is a violation of that. Uh, and the Bible's clear sin is worthy of punishment, right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So the problem here isn't that God is being harsh. The problem is that God is actually being just. The reason this feels harsh to us is because most of the time, God's really patient and gracious with us. And to be honest, I think what should stun us as we, if we really believe the Bible, if we really believe what it says about sin is true, what should shock us when we read the account of Ananias and Sapphira is not that they fall over dead. It's that we didn't fall over dead right now. That a holy, perfect God could know the thoughts that I thought yesterday and allow me to keep breathing. If sin really is what the Bible says, serious, a serious violation of a gracious God allowing us to live and worship Him and enjoy His creation, and we go our own way and we build our own kingdoms and we set ourselves up as rivals against His rule, how on earth can He allow us to live at all? Just because, because God relates to us mostly with patience and grace doesn't mean He will do so tomorrow. And we have no right to demand grace from Him. That's what makes it grace. It's unmerited. And yes, He gives it often, but family, there are moments, and we're seeing one of them here, where he, His patience runs out, where His grace isn't given. The Bible is clear. Sin is serious. And the patience of God is not meant to show us that God condones sin. You know, Romans chapter 2 says, you know, do you presume on the riches of His kindness towards you? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think we do this. I think, I think even our, our view of this as harsh is a presumption on God's kindness and goodness. But the Bible's clear. Sin is serious. That's what Calvary was meant to show us. You know, the, the horrors of the, of the cross were required as payment for our sin. So sin's a big deal. I, that's what I want you to see here. This passage is showing us that sin is a, a big deal. Uh, and God does, though, he, though we're justified by Jesus, He disciplines those He loves. I do not necessarily think that Ananias and Sapphira were non-Christians. I think it is totally possible we will see them in heaven. I don't know that this is eternal wrath being poured out on God. I think this is discipline from God that He gives. Hebrews 12 is clear. God disciplines those He loves. He disciplines us as children. When you're in sin, God may bring upon you hardship to steer you in the right direction, or He might even punish it severely like this in death to protect your family, protect those around you. I mean, God, God punishes those He loves the uh, Bible is clear. Sin's a big deal. That's what I want you to see there. Number two, second thing we see about sin, the sneakiness of sin. I think we're meant to see the sneaky way that sin got into their hearts and affected the church here. Ananias and Sapphira, I don't think they saw this day coming. Right? What plays out here, I think, is a surprise for them. They did not see their sin for what it was. They didn't think they'd get caught. They didn't grasp how enormous the consequences would be. I really think this all started out with them trying to do good. I think they listed their land and sold it because they wanted to give it to the church. I think they desired to be generous here. Uh, 
But then they're staring at all this money and one thought creeps in. One single thought creeps into one of their minds. We don't know who was first, but it's the thought, this is a lot of money. This, we could do some things with this money. This, we, could, we could keep some. And, and even that's okay. They could have. This is, this is what is sneaky about sin. Most lies that sin tells you are based on truths. They could have kept the whole thing. It wasn't sinful for them to keep what was theirs. But what did they do? They lied. They, they, they realized we can have our cake and eat it too. We can look like we gave it and we can enjoy some for ourselves. That was all. That's the whole sin family. An idea in their mind that sounded good. Duplicitous. Reason. They reasoned it out in their brains. And then they walked through in this plan that they, they had developed. This is how it always works, family, since, since the Garden of Eden until now. The lies that Satan tempts us with are so sneaky. They sound rational. They, they, they see, it seems like, it's almost like our, our sinful nature can convince us that sin is a good decision. This is the best thing for me right now. This is, this is the right, it, it, but don't be deceived. It's always selling you a lie. It persu- it, sin persuades us that it won't cost us everything. It won't go too far. It lures us into believing that sin is small, it's unseen, no one will find, it, find us out, it can be contained, it's fine. But don't be deceived. Maybe you had a pastor like me growing up who used to always say this phrase, sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. Again and again in the Bible you see that, and you're seeing it here with Ananias and Sapphira too. Sin is sneaky. It sneaks into our heart. We have to be on guard. This is why the scriptures call us to be sober-minded and watchful because our enemy prowls around trying to destroy someone. It's why in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to you know, put on the armor of God and pray, be prayerful that we might be able to stand against the schemes of Satan. You know Why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane told his disciples, watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, there's the, we're, we're meant to be on guard against sin. Sin is sneaky. It can sneak into our lives. Um, Number three, third thing we're seeing about sin here, the spread of sin. The spread of sin or the multiplication of sin. Um, Sin does not ever stay contained. It spills out of our hearts onto others. It causes sin to grow in the hearts of others around us. You know, this all began in one of their hearts. I don't know if it was Ananias or Sapphira. It doesn't tell us. I think it might be Ananias based on, you know, Peter's words to him versus Peter's words to, to Sapphira, but we don't know who it began with. And it really doesn't matter because the, the point that I see playing out here is that it spread from one heart to the other, which is, you know, totally consistent with the Bible. Sinful hypocrisy in us can totally sneak in into other people's. Again, in the give the Bible, we see sin not staying contained in one person, but spreading, uh, provoking sin in others. Sometimes it looks like what it is here, sharing of sin. You know, Adam and Eve. Eve sinned first, and then she was like, oh, let me include you. This would be fun, Adam. This is great fruit to just eat. Uh, you see it uh, again in, in um, Genesis over and over again. Abraham and Sarah, they lie. Abraham develops this lie that, oh, she's my sister. Go along with this, honey. This is a great deceit for us to do together. Uh, Lot's two daughters, their conspiracy with their dad, um, which is really sexually immoral and, and, and very dirty, but they... Uh, they, they, they conspire together to uh, have children with their father. Uh, Joseph's brothers conspire to kill him. One of them had the idea, let's kill our brother Joseph. And then he gets the other ten to go in with him to, uh, you know, 
uh, throw him in the, the pit and lie to their father. Um, every single mo- moment of gossip ever, it's sinful and you want to have other people involved in it. So again and again in the Bible, we see, we see this. Sin has this, you know, we, we almost want to justify our sin by including others in it. And if they join us, then it's okay. It must not be that sinful. So that's one way it spreads. I think another way it spreads, it's not so evident here in this passage, but I just want to point it out. Sin in you often results in sin in others by reactions, by responses to you. When you get angry with your spouse, sometimes it causes anger in them as well. Our sin can create sin in others through sinful responses. Uh, you see this when you know Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Deceit, him and his mom plotted that deceit, and then Esau wants to kill him. You see this when that Egyptian slave master was, uh, remember he was beating uh, the Jews, and Moses sees this. So the, the slave master is doing something wrong, and then Moses kills him as a result. So it's, it's sin that provokes more sin. This, this is another way that it plays out in our life, sin just spreading to other people. It's the nature of sin. It spreads. That's just what I want you to see here. You, the sins that you do as a man will impact your family. They'll impact your wife. You will cause sin that your wife will be accountable to God for because you've sinned in the way that you've led. You will cause sin in your children in the ways that they will be literally accountable to God for by the ways that you've provoked them to sin. This is why um, Ephesians 6, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That we have a responsibility to you know, not sin and not, not uh, bring about sin in the lives of those we love. So just see it. It's a, it's a really tragic part of the story playing out here. One of them, let, and I, I blame Ananias, regardless of if, if it was Sapphira's idea, Ananias should have known to protect his wife from this idea. If it was his idea, he should have never shared it. If it was her idea, he should have shut it down immediately. His failure to lead in this moment as a, as a man of God causes his death and the, and the death of his wife. Um, so I think his sin is bigger before God in that sense because he didn't lead his wife well. But, but this is how it happens. Sin spreads. Number four, the origin of sin. We see how sin develops. We see where it all begins for them. And this is significant. Tune in here. Look at verse 3 with me where Peter begins to talk to Ananias as he comes in. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? You know, he has Holy Spirit discernment in this moment. I don't know how, he, how else he could have possibly known what Ananias was up to other than the Holy Spirit telling him. And Peter reveals how and where this you know, sinful conspiracy began. Deep in the heart of Ananias, way inside, where Satan had filled him and his wife up. And in this book, where again and again all we've seen is the Holy Spirit filling, now we're seeing a first glimpse of Satan filling our heart, which is really fascinating. I don't think we're meant to move past that. What does that mean to be filled by, by Satan in, in our hearts? Does it mean you know Ananias was demon-possessed? Does it mean that... Uh, you know, Satan was literally inside him. Does that mean that it wasn't his fault? It was Satan's fault working, working through him? This is where it gets interesting. Look at verse 4 at the end where, where Peter says to Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So Ananias is not off the hook. It was him. He contrived it in his heart and Satan filled his heart. So I think two things are at play in this passage. Satan was absolutely tempting him, but Ananias liked it and he contrived a plan and Satan 
He, I think in that way he allowed Satan to fill his heart. This is how sin grows. James 1 shows us the best anatomy of sin, like the best blueprint of how sin plays out in our life, how it spreads, how it comes, and how it grows. Anywhere in the Bible it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So immediately, any, anytime you have sin in your life, anytime you're tempted, God is not involved in that. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. The Bible is really clear on that. Then James tells us how it does happen, though. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it gives birth to sin, no, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. So we can be confused about how sin plays out in our life, and the Bible wants us to be clear. And I think we're seeing this in Ananias and Sapphira. So how does it happen? Sin starts as desire. It begins in your heart as a thought of desire, longing, wanting. There's allurement, it says. There's enticement. I think that's where Satan fits in. He tempts us. But we want it. And there's a gestation period. It says, uh, you know, sin begins as desire. And when it has conceived, it gives it gives birth to sin. So before sin happens out here in the real world, there's, there's temptation and desire playing out in our minds. Does that make sense? So there's a gestation period of sin. We think about sin before we actually do sin. We contemplate, we ideate, we visualize, we fantasize about sin before we actually do it. And then we do it. Sin comes out. It pops out as a baby. It gives birth to sin. And then when it has... Once it's alive, it grows, and when it's fully grown, the Bible says it brings forth death. It may start out small. It may start out as a tiny little one-time sin, but you give it life, you let it keep walking around, it will grow big, and it will eventually kill you. Is that not exactly what we see playing out with Ananias and Sapphira? It was a thought that they let live there. And as they let it live there, Satan fills their heart, and it becomes sin that grows to bring forth death family sin this is what it does this is how it comes this is how it grows up it's serious it will kill you it is not a kitty cat to be played with it is every little thought of desire that you play out in your brain is something that when fully grown will kill you will destroy you will destroy your family that's why i wanted to focus here i mean it, this is this is hard to you know there's there's other parts of this passage that would be more fun to preach and teach i'd love to just jump to standing strong in the face of persecution as men and continuing even when beaten to proclaim the gospel. That's a great encouraging message that I'd love to give you all. But here's a truth that the Bible teaches. Right now there's things playing out, desires in your brain that will kill you if you don't kill them first. This very second, there's possibly desires that have been there for a while that you've just been letting live out in your brain. And, and Satan's filling you right now. And he's putting enticements and allurements. I mean, that, that, that word lure from James 1, it reminds me of fishing. He is setting a trap for you. And it's playing out. And maybe it hasn't given birth to sin in your life yet. Maybe you haven't fallen through on your plans that might be in your brain right now. Maybe you have. Maybe there's a little sin, baby, that's popped out in your life. 
And maybe you need to kill it before it kills you, before he's huge and can't be controlled. I, I don't know where you are in the, this process, this life cycle of sin that's demonstrated in James and, and showcased for us in Acts chapter 5, but I think it is worth us all asking what tempting thoughts are growing in our life right now. What sins have begun small but are growing in our life right now? What is, is playing out? And I'll give you the advice of my favorite old dead preacher, John Owen. Maybe the best quote uh, in all time. But, but he says, be killing sin lest it be killing you. The whole life of a believer is meant to be mortifying our flesh. We, we, when saved, it's, our sinful nature doesn't fall off. The Bible is clear on this. Romans chapter 7 is clear. Paul, being a Christian, is still struggling with, I keep doing what I don't want to do. I've, there's two men in me. I find it to be a law. Every time I want to be, do good, there's evil lying close at hand. Paul in Galatians 5 says, don't walk by the flesh, walk by the Spirit. We have flesh, we have spirit. We have to be mindful about putting our flesh to death, about not letting thoughts become actions. And when actions do happen, which we're, we're sinful, and, and these we, we are going to have moments of failure, men. I know that that's true. And praise be to God, He's most of the time really gracious with us. He doesn't kill us in that second. But don't, don't. Press on the patience of God. Don't presume on the kindness of God. His, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Sin is serious. It's sneaky. It grows in us. We're seeing the origin there. It brings us number five, the purification of sin. I want you to see how God removes it from their midst. He does two things. There's a correction from church leaders. And secondly, there's intervention by the Holy Spirit. The correction from the church leaders is, of course, to... Oh, it's already seven. Ah, we'll skip this one. You want me to finish? Just the thought. Okay, the thought is this. Um, the Holy Spirit will do what He wants. Sometimes He does act in profound ways to purify sin from our life. If sin is big in you, I pray He will do that right now. I mean that. But what He does often is use the church to correct us. Use pastors, use elders, use men in our life who are following Him to speak directly and clearly to us and say, you're going the wrong way. In all of you is something, if that ever happens, something that we'll want to fight back. You're wrong. It is not easy for pastors and elders to have to give these kind of rebukes, but they're an important part of how God purifies the church. This is what Peter does. Peter doesn't kill Ananias and Sapphira. Be really clear about that. The elders, the church does not kill these people. The Holy Spirit does. But they do, a, I think they were surprised as anyone when they fell dead. But what Peter does do is he directly confronts sin in Ananias. He calls it what it is. He rebukes him for it. And then Ananias falls dead. So uh, the big point there is God intends for there to be purity in his church. And he brings it about through watchmen that he's placed in our lives, pastors, elders, who uh, part of their role is to oversee the church, to, to look for sin and to correct it when we see it. Um, so if that ever happens in your life, if we ever see something in you as your church leaders and we come and sit down and have a conversation, know that it's in love, trying to be obedient to scripture. We're not trying to hurt you. We're trying to help you. We're trying to, and we'll try to say it that way, but, uh, this is hard. These don't usually go very well. 
And, and praise be to God, they don't happen that often, but um, it's an important part of this thing called church, the purification of sin from among us. So the three questions on there, and then we'll end application questions. Uh, first one, what sinful thoughts am I minimizing in my mind right now? So what has been accommodating in my brain that I need to kill? Number two, what sin is living in my life that I have allowed but needs to be put to death? And number three, who has my sin affected and multiplied in? And then how do I need to repent? So how has sin spread in your life and where do you need to make some corrections there? Let me pray for us, man. I'm I'm sorry I went a little long today. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for your word. And on a morning like this with some, some hard thoughts, Father, I just pray your word would land on our hearts rightly. Where we need to repent, would you bring that about? Where we need to repent and, uh, and live differently, would you, uh, would you bring that to, to reality? Father, we trust you. We love you. We love your word, even when it's hard on us. So, so guide us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, hey, guys. It is uh, Pastor Brian back here. <clears throat> I know we finished up Men of the Word this morning without a chance to talk through the uh, continued development of our themes here in um, Acts. And so I wanted to take some time here in a post Men of the Word wrap-up show, um, just a few minutes to help you track through them. If you have been following these, just want to make sure you're seeing. We did have some big development this week um, in almost every area. So first big theme we've been tracking, Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> through the church. This shows up um, twice uh, explicitly, first in the uh, deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, very clearly, the work of the Spirit there, uh, bringing them to dead out of nowhere, right as they're confronted with their sin. Um, so a clear judgment coming through from the Holy Spirit uh, for their sin. Uh, second time you see it is in verses 12 through uh, 16 of chapter 5, when all these signs and wonders are being done uh, by the apostles. So these healings, these uh, miracles taking place, all these people coming even throwing themselves into the, uh, uh, the shadows uh, where, where Peter would walk so that the shadow might fall on him. Um, these are all, you know, Peter's not doing these miracles, exactly as he said back in chapter, um, chapter 3 when the lame beggar was, was healed. He's nothing special. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working through him. So, again, we're seeing the Spirit uh, play out here. Um, I also think there's some um, uh, implicit Holy Spirit work here in the unity that the church is enjoying there at the end of chapter 4 and also um, in this uh, bold proclamation that they have in chapter 5 before the council as the apostles are there. Um, Just again, the the Holy Spirit, you know, throughout this entire book, he's giving power for witnessing. So I think um, when the apostles step forward to do this bold um, declaration to the high council, the Jewish leaders that they are the ones who crucified Jesus, and he is truly the Messiah. That, that witnessing is derivative of the work of the Spirit. So just another spot where you see him showing up. <clears throat> Second theme, uh, witnessing, witnessing for Christ, um, uh, happens twice here. <clears throat> First, when they, uh, the apostles are freed from prison, and the angel tells them to go uh, and teach in the temple. That's verse 20 of chapter 5. And then also you catch it in uh, there when they're before the high council, as we just mentioned. That's verses 30 through 32 as the uh, apostles witness to Jesus there. Um, development of the church. <clears throat> uh, not a lot happens here. Uh, these, this particular week's context was not uh, so much on church development, but I do, I do think this unity, this profound unity and togetherness, this communal living that they, they have is, is just a glimpse into uh, how the early church operated, um, which is a really a beautiful thing we're meant to see. 
Um, I also see uh, some some development under this theme when you're talking about uh, Ananias and Sapphira and um, specifically how the church dealt with sin. Peter confronted sin. He confronted it directly. He confronted it uh, directly to them um, without any fear. And uh, that that's obedient to the way Jesus instructed the church to handle sin. Um, in Matthew 18, as he sort of lays out a groundwork for how uh, sin should be dealt with. Um, that's the passage that informs uh, the church today on how we should handle church discipline issues. Um, so, so Peter's just being obedient to Jesus. They're implementing the instructions of Christ um, as the church continues to develop. Uh, the fourth one, history of salvation. This one really doesn't develop too much. Um, you see it a little bit in Peter's sermon, um, the apostle sermon there before the high council. Um, as they reference the fact that that Jesus, uh, you know, is connected with the God of our fathers is the exact phrase there. Um, so, you know, again, there's absolute connection to Israel and to the Old Testament with Christ. There's no discontinuity. Jesus is fully consistent as the um, as the true Messiah that the Old Testament um, predicted and prophesied about, and uh, and he has come. So Peter makes that clear, as he has previously, as he will continue to do as this uh, history of salvation theme continues to develop in this book. And then the last one, <clears throat> evangeliz- evangelization of the nations. You know, the, the Great Commission, we fulfilled the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and ends, ends of the earth. Um, some big development here, and I mentioned this in our teaching time, but I just want to point it out to you one more time if you've been tracking this. Um, here as we get to chapter 5 of Acts, um, Jerusalem is filling up. You know, the, the high council references that in verse 28 when they say, we, uh, talking to the apostles, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So again, the gospel <clears throat> is, uh, is reaching every corner of Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen, um, which means we need to be on, uh, on guard for this, ready for this, to see this coming up in the, in the next few weeks, very soon that the Holy Spirit will um, produce growth outside of Jerusalem. That He's going to project the church out. The gospel will begin to spread outside of the city. Um, as the city has filled up, that's what's going to happen next. Um, you see one other reference to this in verse 16. When you see in the midst of all these you know mighty miracles that the apostles are doing, they have uh, people from outside Jerusalem. It says. Uh, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick um, to the apostles, and they were all healed. So, again, there are uh, people outside Jerusalem beginning to encounter the gospel as it really takes root and as the church really establishes itself there in Jerusalem. So, uh, hope you will continue to track those themes um, as they continue to develop in the weeks ahead. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for your time. Glad you were able to join us this morning. And... Uh, We'll see you next week.